If you turn with me to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, I'm having to watch my time. I'm not used to having an offering and a, all of that at the end of the service. So if, if I'm starting to get close to the, to the finish line, somebody take a bulletin and wad it up and throw it up here so I'll know I'm, I'm done. But I will try to move through this this morning um, in a way that will get us to the end appropriately. We're looking at Acts chapter 9. We're looking at the conversion of Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Let me tell you where we're going. Where is this passage going? First thing that we want to see is this. Here is the most unexpected convert of his time. If anybody would have said, Saul of Tarsus is going to become a Christian, you would have probably been laughed out of town. Now, for somebody like that to become a Christian, it was because God saved Saul. That's what we've got to say. Now, just really honestly, who saved you? (laughs) And we've got to say, we know God saved me. God can save Saul, God can save you and me. Just look around you. If you can see them, God can save them. That's the first point. The second point that we we want to see, or the third point that we want to see in this is going to be, once we're saved, we need to see that we're secure. Not only are we secure, but this God is going to so take care of us that we should never fear, even though we'll go through some very, very difficult times. But we need to reflect the glory of of the conversion experience that we have. And it needs to be reflected all the days of our lives. We need to reflect back on it, and we need to live that out each and every day. Let's look at this passage together, Acts chapter 9. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way... Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, And you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight and the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision in a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, 
And here he has authority to call on the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was strengthened, or rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now when we look at this passage of scripture, what we see about this man named Saul of Tarsus, and he is probably a young man here, probably in his late 20s, possibly as early as, or as old as his late 30s, but no more than that. And we see by his own admission in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and uh, verse 13 that he says to himself that I was a blasphemer of God, I was a persecutor of the church, and I was a violent aggressor. This is a man who is against Jesus. He is dead set against Jesus. Now, in verse 1 of this passage, you see that he's a man who's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he's, not, he's done this very successfully in Jerusalem, putting down the church there. Now he intends to go to Damascus to try to put down the church that's raising up there. And we see from verse 13 in this passage that his reputation had gone before him even in Damascus. And this man, Ananias, had heard about Saul of Tarsus and how much evil he had done to the saints at Jerusalem. So this man was known already around the Near Eastern world as a violent aggressor and oppressor against the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who in their right mind at that time would have looked at this same man and saw that he would become the apostle that we know as Paul? You would say probably almost no one would have thought that way. Now, I'm saying this for this reason. We need to consider. We need to consider as we look around us and we see people in our culture, in our neighborhood, in the places where we work, some of you that are in school, in school with you, and these people we know and recognize, they have no interest in Jesus. If you were to bring up Jesus' name, the reaction would be sudden, the reaction would be volatile, the action would not be positive, and we're often intimidated by this. We, we discern that this isn't something we want to do. And so we fail to really reach out to them. But if, if God is able to take a man like this, Saul of Tarsus, and change them, then we should be very confident that he is able to change the hearts and the lives of any person with whom we're going to come in contact with. And it should give us courage to be bold in presenting the truth about Jesus Christ to those with whom we come in contact. Now, there's another way of looking at this that's intimidating as well. And that is if we look at who this man Saul of Tarsus was, beyond just what we've read and understand that he was this kind of an aggressor, This man, Saul of Tarsus, was naturally a very strong person. His parents at that time had had the privilege, living in Tarsus, of somehow becoming, although they were Jews, they had become Roman citizens. 
And that meant that their children, this one son Saul that was born to them and other children, were born into this world as citizens of Rome. And that was one of the most high privileges of any human person that would be alive at this time. Not only that, he was from this town of Tarsus, which was a major uh, intersection of world thought and world commerce, and he understood that world. He was born there, but he was raised in Jerusalem, and he was raised basically by a tutor who was the most exemplary teacher of his time, a man named Gamaliel. Not only was he raised by this man, Gamaliel, but he says of himself that I outdistance all of my contemporaries in this learning. There was even a close second to Saul of Tarsus in the mastering of the teaching that came from this man, Gamaliel. He was his very best student. As a result, he identified himself with the strictest code of conduct of the uh, Jewish male, he became a Pharisee, which meant he became a, a strict follower of the laws of Moses and the laws of the teachers of that time. In this, as he interpreted the law and lived the law, he was, now catch this, outwardly blameless. This means people that would look at his lives would be intimidated by his outward moral purity. This man, he was the epitome of what we would call a self-made man. He had started as a child and moved his way all the way to the top. Now, as we look at him... We see a person that's like most of the people that are around us. You can look at their environment. You can look at their personality. You can look at the way they live, and you can explain them. You can say if they came from a bad background and they're not quite making it, well, that's explainable. If they've grown up in a way that has some level of privilege and they've lived consistent with that privilege, that's explainable. You've got others who have had exemplary privileges in, in normal human life. They've attained great things, but yet it's all explainable. That's the case of all of these people that we see around us that are outside of Christ. Their lives are absolutely explainable by the circumstances in which they were raised and the things they gave themselves to. This man had come into one particular situation that really defined him at this time, and that was he came in contact with a man named Stephen. And Stephen was very similar to himself, very intelligent, and he was a witness to Jesus Christ, and when we study this man, Stephen, we see that he was full of the Holy Spirit, that he was full of knowledge of the Scripture, that he was full of a zeal to explain Jesus Christ to his, his world around him. And, and this man was full of kindness and mercy. And so Saul of Tarsus ran into a witness. And that's very key. 
You need to be a witness. You need to be a witness to these people that we know that are outside of Christ. Saul came in contact with him and he heard this man's testimony to Jesus Christ before the Jewish high council. After he was done, Saul of Tarsus had given partial approval with the others on that high council for Stephen's condemnation. And Saul was a legal witness to his stoning and execution. And it was Saul of Tarsus who heard Stephen cry out that he saw the heavens open and that he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And he heard that just before the angry Jewish people finished stoning Stephen and put him to death. Now, Doubt, doubtful that in our witness to anybody that we're going to be stoned. But doubtless if we clearly witness to people, especially people that have a level of antagonism, is there any doubt that the bulk of our culture has a level of antagonism right now towards the person of Jesus Christ? But as we witness we will receive some level of persecution. Witness, we must. We must witness as Christians, pray as Christians, and serve as Christians. This is what Stephen did, and he did it before the man who was the least likely person of his age to become converted. Now, the second thing I'd want us to see is this. And this is true of Saul, true of me, it's going to be true of you if you're a Christian. And we see this in verse 3 through 6. What do we see here? We see Jesus revealing himself to Saul of Tarsus. So we read in these verses that as he was on his way, he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, This man, Saul, fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And the voice comes back and says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, in in our Presbyterian tradition, we have a number of catechisms. You all are somewhat familiar with those. We have the shorter catechism and larger catechism that is an authorized document of our Constitution. But we also have this other little catechism called the Catechism for Children. Questions and Answers. Now, one of the questions and answers that the children are taught is this. Who can change a sinner's heart? That's the question. The answer comes back, only God can change a sinner's heart. Now, what do we see here with Saul of Tarsus? We see the Lord Jesus Christ, the living God, making himself directly known to the heart and mind, even the eyes and ears of Saul of Tarsus. Suddenly this light is flashing around Saul. This 
proud man is prostrated, instantly he knows what this bright light means. And he is on his face. This is the beginning of the remaking of this man Saul. He's hearing a voice. The voice is speaking to him. Twice his name is called Saul, Saul. The question is asked, why are you persecuting me? This man Saul asked the question, who are you, Lord? And the Lord comes back and says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. He's given a command. Rise and enter the city. You're going to be told what you're going to do. Now, we read an event like this, and we have a couple problems. First of all, we say it happened way back when. The second thing that we have a problem with is we say, this is what happened to Saul of Tarsus. I'm not Saul of Tarsus. But when we really come to understand what Saul has said about this event, Saul wants to make us of a very different opinion. How does this apply to us? How does this apply to people who are around us who are unconverted at this moment, unchurched? How does the supernatural event of God come to relate to us? Well, thank you for whoever put the bulletin together. How about you pick up your bulletin? Come on, pick it up, look at the front page. Just the passage of Scripture I wanted. So this is where I was going to refer to. Down in the fourth, third line, it says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. I received mercy. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Do you see what he's saying here? I'm the foremost. Now, Paul is making a statement there. I am related to you. I'm ahead of you. I'm the least likely person that you might think to be converted. But you're just like me. You're just behind. You're but in the same kind of a, a relationship. And then he goes on to say, I was an example. My conversion is an example to you of your conversion. Who can change a sinner's heart? The catechism answers, only God can change a sinner's heart. This is what we're seeing, and this is what we need to recognize. God can save anyone. All right, I'm 22. That's 40 years ago right now. Okay? So I am 22. 
It's the summer. This is summer. I am unconverted. All of a sudden, the Lord Jesus, through fellowship with people that were 20 and 21 and 22 and 23, came to a guy in a bar and said, you need to come to the church. And I came to the church. And I heard about Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus is revealing himself to me. In my life, is turned entirely around. Now, what happened to Paul in his conversion has no human explanation. Today, people are looking for mystery. Here's mystery. How was Paul converted? He was converted by the power of God. How was I converted? By the power of God. My brother at that time, West Palm Beach policeman, out in cars, giving tickets, pulls the man over. Well, the man's savvy. He looks at my brother. He sees the name Kinzer, Sergeant Kinzer. He goes, uh, do you have a brother named John? Yes, I have a brother named John. Same guy that used to drive around here in the little yellow sports car? Yeah, that's my brother. Haven't seen John. What's John doing now? Well, John's a Presbyterian minister in South Alabama. Must be a different John Kinzer. (laughs) That had a little yellow sports car. Here. You see... The one and the other has no human correlation. The only explanation is God had come down and revealed himself to a young boy at age 22. Again, I want us to feel more of this, that this is the same thing that Paul is saying about each of us. If you want to, you may turn to the second book of Corinthians chapter 4, and beginning in verse 3, Paul says these things, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds, that of the unbeliever, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? Very clearly, he's saying that when a person is converted, they've come to meet the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. 
When I heard the gospel, I heard Jesus call to me. It was personal. It was direct. It was to me as a sinner. And he was calling me to himself. And he was calling me to his service. And when you've heard the gospel, and the gospel has been a call to you, it comes to you directly and personally. It doesn't come generally. And it comes with power. And it comes in a way that reveals and makes known. And we hear Jesus calling us to himself. That's what Paul experienced. That's what I've experienced. Anyone we know can hear that voice and become a convert when that Lord Jesus speaks to their heart. But it begins with witnessing. You say, what is the future of our church? future of your church is witnessing. future of your church is having contact with people that aren't in this church, that aren't in other churches. The future of your church is being able to live before them, as Paul says, being servants of Jesus for their sake, that they might hear the gospel. You don't have to know everything. What did the man that was born blind say? All these questions you're asking me are a bit over my head. But I can tell you this, once I was blind, but now I can see. You remember what they said? Has anyone ever heard from the beginning of the foundation of the world that a man who was born blind was made able to see? (laughs) There was no human explanation for it. They said, we don't know where this man came from. Now that man born blind, he says, this is really an amazing thing. You're the religious leaders of our nation. And never before in the history of the world has it been heard that a man born blind was able to see. And you don't know where he's from? Well, Paul tells us their minds were veiled in unbelief. When we witness, it puts Jesus next to these people. It's up to God to take the veil away and make Jesus personally known to them. But without witnessing, this doesn't happen. We're to be his witnesses right here. Third thing that I'd like to come to, this is our final point. What did Paul do with this man Saul of Tarsus? What happened here? From this point on, what happened to this man? And what we find is that this man is being told, you are going to suffer many things for myself, but I've got a job for you and I want you to go and do the things that I've called you to do. Primarily to be a witness, it says to the Gentiles, to the people, he says to kings, to all kinds of people. But this man is being constantly renewed by God. You can see it here in, in Acts chapter 9, in verse 6. You're to rise, you're to enter into the city. That's the first part of his renewal. In verse 16, he, he is being told that he will suffer for his name. Verse 19, he is taking food and being strengthened. And this is just the beginning. His was a life of obedience by faith 
to Jesus. Over and over again, Jesus gave him directions of what he wanted him to do, and Jesus went and did these things. You realize that about a week ago today, a phone call came and was asked, would you come and preach at First Presbyterian Church in Bluxy? Now, I've got a full-time job in Macon, Georgia. I have responsibilities there today. Am I in Macon, Georgia? No. I didn't hear God, I heard John. But when John called, it was as if Jesus was calling through John. Ben called. It was as if Jesus was calling through Ben. I'm not in Macon, Georgia. I'm where I'm supposed to be. It'll be just like that with you. Now, this other thing that we want to see about this. Did, did Paul ever have setbacks? Can you think of this man, Saul of Tarsus, Paul? As he moves through, let's ask this question. Did Paul ever have anyone fail him as a ministry partner? We say, well, John Mark did. Some degree, Barnabas did. These when later on, they were back being partners in ministry again. There was a man named Demas who left them entirely, another man named Hermogenes, another man named Flagellan. These men left them. Are churches ever deserting? You know, the Galatian church deserted him for a while. The Corinthian church basically turned their back on him. All these things were restored. But you know something? Jesus never once failed Paul. Jesus never once deserted Paul. You may go through times like this. You may feel left out. But you're going to know this. You go back and you say, there was a point in time, I remember, when this man Jesus made himself known to me and changed my life, and he's been changing my life and changing my life and changing my life, using me, using me, using me, leading me, leading me, leading me. Put it in the bank. It's never going to stop. Never leave you, never forsake you. Underneath you are always going to be the everlasting arms. Be with you at the end of the world. That's what he said. That's what he does. People may fail you. How about sufferings? How about persecutions? How about somebody really being down on them? Paul ever experienced that? The stories of this man are almost the stories of some kind of an epic superhero. This man was stoned. This man was beaten with rods on numerous occasions. The Jews beat him with, with stripes 39 times. They never beat him more than 39 because if you struck a person 41 times, you were liable to the same punishment. And so instead of going to 40, they stopped at 39, so there would be no way they would ever get to 41. But he was lashed like this. He was slapped in the face. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. He was 
misinterpreted, misunderstood. He was purposefully distorted. He was plotted against. How many things came into his life like that? You know what? Jesus never did. (laughs) When he's in prison, he has a vision, and Jesus is right there, and he says, you know... You need to hang around this city because I've got a lot of people here. They need to hear about me. Jesus is constantly leading this man's life. We need to see that. Paul maintained his ministry. Now, we need to maintain our ministry here in this church and as individuals. One last illustration. Last week, week before last, a friend of mine named John Rodwell called me up. Late at night, tears, 52, broken, broken over the sufferings of all of his friends. Losses of jobs. His father owned the bank. <laughs> the bank sold out to one of the big banks. The stock went up for 20 years. Guess what happened to the stock three years ago? He went from being able to do whatever he wants to not even go into football games. That's how drastically he was affected. All his friends, young people, suffering with diseases, accidents, whatnot. He asked me, where's God? Where's Jesus? We talked about the same stuff we've just talked about. What kind of helped him more than anything was the end. And I just said to him, John, have you thought about the Haitian Christians? He said, no. Thought about the African Christians? He says, nope. I says, John, they think the American church has had so much so long. They wonder how we're going to do now that some of it's being taken away. He said, I needed to hear that. That's perspective. What we're suffering isn't a drop in the bucket. What you suffered isn't a drop in the bucket to what the church and the other parts of the world suffered. Jesus is showing up for them, but they're looking for him to show up. And he is. Paul maintained his ministry. Let's us together, individually, corporately, maintain our ministry here for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Now, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, bless us. We want to serve you. And we want you honored, and we want you glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.